Amen. All right. If you got your Bibles, open to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then Acts chapter 17. We'll continue our study uh, in the book of Acts of uh, Paul in the early days of church planting. Um, as we uh, flip that direction, just know there is going to be a little bit of start and stop today. September 11th is always that way, but we will always remember and never forget. Amen. Uh, that is something that we will always take time out to do. And so uh, with that being said, uh, the passage of scripture we're going to read today and the study uh, is Paul and the Hill Part 1. Now, before you get real self-centered and think we're talking about Capitol Hill, in our study, we have gotten to a place called Mars Hill, all right? That is in Athens uh, at the, on the Acropolis. Uh, and uh, again, this is a, a very specific hill, not your hill, but a hill, a very important hill. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of similarities uh, between Athens, uh, the city-state of old, and uh, D.C., uh, what is kind of a city-state now uh, that we have uh, as well. It's, uh, it's, again, a separate district. And so all that to say, uh, it's a very interesting study. One scholar said this, uh, that uh, if there was a crest or a seal for Athens, it should be a picture of, quote, a great tongue. All right? The idea is it was a city known for a whole lot of talking, a whole lot of new ideas. Sound familiar? All right? Uh, and again, it's the reason why a lot of churches that have been planted here in D.C. will use this passage of Acts chapter 17 as a template for how to reach people in this city. It's, again, a city of great ideas, city of a whole lot of talking. Talking, and uh, uh, here's what we learn. Uh, in a city where there's a whole lot of talking, sometimes you need to take the soft approach as opposed to taking the strong approach, all right? So it starts off today with this question. Have you ever tried a softer approach after starting too strong, all right? You ever had to take a softer approach after starting too strong? I mean, you start out guns blazing, you start out again, just like a bear, right? And then you got to kind of drift back and have a little bit more of a conversation. Hopefully, that's the attitude of our city, right? Uh, that, again, we come in, and uh, we are open uh, to dialogue and conversation. And sometimes that gentle, soft response can be something that is absolutely uh, powerful and uh, the best thing that you could have done. So the best example I can give to you that, I'm wearing my fancy shoes again today, all right? I want to talk about basketball for a second. For any basketball fans out there, uh, since I was a kid, I used to collect basketball cards and... Uh, my mom would take me on trips to see some of the famous basketball players. We lived in Lubbock, Texas. I grew up in the golden age of the NBA, all right? And uh, in 1992, I told my mom that my hero was a player named Michael Jordan, all right? In fact, 92 might have been uh, the peak of his physical talents uh, because he was still a young man, but he was in great shape. And uh, uh, for Jordan, 1992, it was pretty fantastic. So my mom got us tickets to go watch the Bulls and the Dallas Mavericks. Mavericks play. We made the six-hour drive uh, from uh, Lubbock to Dallas and uh, got to watch my hero. And here's the deal. Jordan, his quiet strength was from the moment he walked into the stadium, everyone was in awe of him. In fact, we didn't show up to see it was Fat Lever and Derek Harper were the two best players on the Mavericks at that point. We didn't come to see them. We came to watch Michael. I remember we showed up an hour and a half before the game, watched him warm up in those North Carolina light blue shorts, pale blue shorts, and I'm telling you, it was incredible uh, to watch him play. 
I'll never forget, on that particular day that we went to watch him, he played two and a half quarters, scored 24 points in those two and a half quarters, and just absolutely obliterated the Mavericks. He had set the tone from the moment he walked in the stadium uh, that he was going to win that game. Well, then, a few years later, a guy named Shaquille O'Neal was a rookie, and my mom, knowing again I love basketball, she said, how about we pull you out of school and drive down to San Antonio uh, to watch the uh, San Antonio Spurs play against Shaquille O'Neal in his rookie season. And so, again, Shaq was so big. I don't know if I'd ever seen a human being that big before. He was so big. And during the warm-ups, they set it up to intimidate. They lob Shaq the ball when they're doing the layup drills. He slams the ball so hard, I thought the rim was going to snap off the backboard. And I'm telling you, it was just so intense. He set the tone in his strength from that moment forward. Now, he got two technical fouls and thrown out of the game for swearing, all right, uh, but uh, which we could hear. They turned that down and uh, on TV. You could hear it in person. And so anyway, I'll have to say uh, my seventh grade self learned some new words that day, and that was good. Anyway, just kidding. So Shaq and his strength were very present. We watched Dirk Nowitzki play a whole bunch in Dallas as well. Dirk was so reckless. Again, seven-footer, but he played like he was six feet tall, throwing around. He had that long European hair that he just kind of flopped from side to side. He was so much fun to watch, but he was all over the place. But I'll just be honest with you. The player, because I was not a Spurs fan, the player that I could not stand, that I watched ruin a crowd more than any other player that I ever saw in person in the NBA, was a player named Tony Parker. Okay? Tony Parker. Tony Parker was famous for a little shot that they called the teardrop. Okay? The teardrop is when Tony Parker would drive hard to the hole, but stop, and he would float the ball up, and it wouldn't use the backboard. It would just drop straight through, straight through like a teardrop. It would drop right through. And here's the thing about the teardrop. Because it wasn't strong, it was finesse and indefensible. Anytime that shot happened, if there was a dunk that took place, there was air that was either in the stadium or, again, you just kind of go, oh, that one hurt a little bit. But it elicited this emotion. The teardrop was so gentle, it took the air out of the stadium. And I'm telling you, if you were the opposing group, there was nothing more hurtful than that gentle teardrop that any player could do if they had the skill to do it. Now, listen. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is not to go strong. Sometimes the most powerful thing you do is very gentle to show, like Tony Parker, there's a hole in the defense. For some of you today, we're going to walk through specifically, and what Paul does on Mars Hill, we're going to walk through very specifically how to witness to people in your life that are in positions of authority over you. These are people who are your bosses. These are people who are in your community, in your HOA. These are people who are your parents, your aunts and uncles, your best friends, your people that you truly, deeply respect. But honestly, they are at a point where they are just a little bit above you, maybe intellectually, maybe with position or leadership, but you are broken to see them come to know Christ as well. I want to encourage you, going strong with those people is not going to work. It's not going to happen. What you're going to have to do is come at them with the truth teardrop, that causes them to stop and really process who you are and who is this God that you serve. If you're taking notes, great little verse to look at is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 through 26. Here's what it says. Paul writes, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
He says, don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments. Underline, don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments. Because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Now stop right there for just a minute. Circle and highlight the Lord's servant must not quarrel. We're about to get into having a conversation with someone over a matter of faith. But all of it runs through the lens that we are not quarrelsome when we do that. If it's a person in position of leadership over you, to choose to not have any discussion at all is ungodly, but to have a discussion for the purpose of quarreling is also not godly. There's a very fine line that we must walk. What's it look like? Here's what it says. It says, verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Underline kind to everyone. Able to teach. Underline able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Underline gently instruct. There's your teardrop. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. I love verse 26. It says, and then they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Underline and highlight that word escape there from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul comes in and says, this is something you want to go strong on or you don't want to go at all. He says, the truth is to find a place in the middle to gently instruct with the truth, to teardrop in the moment something that they cannot deny, that hopefully when they process it and think it through, that God will use it to help them escape this trap that they've been ensnared in through their own intellect. If you're taking notes, write this down. The truth of the gospel is illustrated by a kind heart and gentle instruction. The truth of the gospel is illustrated by a kind heart and gentle instruction. We want to go hard or we want to go not at all. And the truth is we have to find that fine line. The gospel is illustrated by a kind heart and by gentle instruction, holding on to the truth so that they can receive it as well. It begs the big question today we're going to address. How do you share the gospel with really smart people? Let me ask that again. How do you share the gospel with really smart people? You could add specifically to our case today, people in a position of leadership over you that maybe you're smarter than you or have a position of power or leadership uh, that, again, you still have to submit to. I want to encourage you today. This, uh, this is a message that specifically is for your situation. Now flip over to Acts 17, and we're going to start in verse 16, and we'll continue with our story. You ready for this? So it starts off by saying this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Underline them. Them is specifically uh, Timothy and uh, Silas, the ones after he has had to flee Berea. Paul is supposed to be laying low in Athens, but he can't do that. Are you ready? While he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now stop right there for just a minute. False god worship is rampant in that city. And Paul, for his personal benefit, should be laying low and hiding out and just letting this thing blow over. In fact, because Paul himself is a scholar, I'm telling you, going to a place with such great history, going to a place with such amazing architecture. They're letting Paul know, the Bereans go, look, Paul, when it dies down, go hang out in the big city, walk around, take in some of the sights, and then we'll bring Silas and Timothy to you when it's time for you to go back and do ministry again. But here's Paul. Even though it benefits him to lay low, he is broken for the people in this city in the same way he was broken for Berea, in the same way he was broken for Thessalonica, and the same way he was broken for Philippi. He sees the idols and he is broken for the people around him. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do you share the gospel with really smart people? Number one, you must be burdened for their soul. 
You must be burdened for their soul. You know why a lot of people are broken for their boss? You're broken for your boss that doesn't know Christ because it would sure make Christmas and Thanksgiving a whole lot easier if they shared your faith. It would make it a whole lot easier when you have to ask for time off for something that's in, that's in connection with you trying to be a good, godly Christian parent or a good, godly Christian son or daughter. And so here's the deal. You want to see them come to Christ, but you are not broken for them. You are still selfish for what you want in that circumstance and out of that relationship. They can see through that a mile away. They're a boss. They can see through that a mile away. And for your parents, some of you are absolutely broken for your parent. But your desire doesn't need to be for them to get saved because it would be easier on your family situation. You want them to get saved because without Jesus, they spend eternity separated from God in hell. That level of brokenness, that genuine attitude, changes the entire dynamic of discussion and relationship. If your desire for someone to get saved has to do with you, then you missed it and they will spot it and they will not listen to you. I want to show you a video that I've shown here at Waterfront over the years. It's from 11 years ago, and it is from an individual named Penn Gillette, uh, who was an atheist. And this uh, is the story of a man who gave him a little pocket Gideon Bible, and what took place in the heart of a man who still does not claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but he had someone who got to him that it caused him to have pause and to really process why he was living his life the way he was living his life. Josiah, roll clip. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I can open the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks, and you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy, and. Um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, you know, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about you know honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff, and then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, 
It was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And... Uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. How bad do you have to hate somebody to not share your faith with them? There has to be a burden for their soul. Even someone who still claims to be an atheist was touched by that moment. We forget that, don't we? It's not about you. It's not about your life being easier. They've got to see that burning desire in your eyes that you truly believe what you claim and that you don't want them to suffer the same fate that you could have suffered if you hadn't found Jesus. If you're taking notes, write this down. Intelligent people can spot a hidden agenda. Your concern for their soul must be evident and genuine. Let me say that again. Intelligent people can spot a hidden agenda. Your concern for their soul must be evident and genuine. Just for the record, my dad used to say this. If you've got a professor, he would talk to college students, and he would say, you can see your college professor come to Christ, but your goal has got to be to not shame them in the middle of the class. Have the conversation in their office after class and not while they're teaching. Dad used to use the term, he said, you're just trying to get a scalp. You're just trying to get a notch for your belt or a scalp for your wall. The goal is that you could have something that you've done to show that you were bigger or stronger than that person. That didn't have anything to do with God. That had to do with your ego. 
You want to truly see people in authority over you come to Christ, see amazing things happen in your office? They've got to look you in the eye and know that you love them, that you are broken for them, that you believe that without Jesus, they have no hope. And they will have those discussions with you. But you got to have the guts to do it the right way with a genuine heart. And there has to be evidence of that. No greater example of that in Scripture, in my opinion, than John chapter 11. Save your spot there in Acts and flip over to John 11. And let's look at verses 33 through 36. This is the story of Lazarus. When Lazarus is raised from the dead, but you got to remember, with Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha have deep questions. In fact, both of them on different occasions say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. We've seen you heal the sick. We've seen you do amazing things where you could have taken care of him. And they fire back and they go, if you had been here, we have this big, deep theological question that we need to navigate. And Jesus looking at them says, all this is happening in the Lord's time, but that's hard for them to receive. Now look at verse 33, what he does. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. They replied, verse 35, and Jesus wept. Look at verse 36. It says, then the Jews said, do you see how he loved him? Now stop right there for just a minute. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. One of the great miracles of all time is about to take place. And what's the lead-in? The lead-in is that even though there are theological questions swirling, even though Jesus knows the plan and how this is going to be something that is not just good but eternal in nature, what does he do? He says, take me to the tomb. And when he gets there, he grieves with them because of the pain that they've had to endure. It's genuine, and it causes the religious leaders to go, man, look at how he loved him. This isn't just something that he could fake. There is genuine concern that takes place there. You know why you can't reach those people in authority over you with the gospel? Because you don't really stinking care about them. They know that. They know. And if you started to truly bleed for them spiritually, they would listen to whatever you have to say about God. They're still your boss. They're still your parent. They're still the person who's in leadership in your community. But they would listen to the hope that you have because it would be evidence you care for them. It begs the question, is a hidden agenda watering down your message? Is a hidden agenda watering down your message? You ever drank watered-down soda before? If it's hot enough, you'll endure it, but you don't ever choose it. You know what I mean? Watered-down soda is something that if you paid for the cup, if it's hot enough outside, you'll drink it, but nobody's ever going to choose it. That watered-down gospel is what we are presenting to those in leadership over us. They can see it. We want them to get saved, but it's more about us than it is about their soul. Now flip back over to Acts 17, and let's read verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says next. Paul's greatly distressed. He should be laying low, but that's not Paul. That's not how he rolls. You ready for this? Look at verse 17. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue. He goes straight back to the synagogue, place he's been getting in all sorts of trouble, right? 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks. And look at this, as well as in the marketplace. Paul must have been a people person, you know what I mean? He doesn't have his friends with him. He's isolated in Athens. I mean, he must have just really needed somebody to talk to. He's broken for the city, so he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. He's talking in the marketplace, and look what it says, day by day with those who happen to be there, all right? A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? I don't know that word babbler. That means somebody who's just talking. He's just saying a whole bunch of different things. It says, others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. For any of you who need to know a little seminary stat here, the word Epicurean here, this idea of an Epicurean philosopher, uh, is this idea that they believed in a life free from pain. You can write that down in the margin of your Bible if you want to. They believed in a life free from pain. Uh, God and word only, that God didn't actually exist, but they talked about the concept of God uh, being this pursuit of a life uh, free from pain, uh, filled with pleasure. And then the Stoic philosopher, uh, the Stoic philosophers believed uh, in uh, that everyone and everything was God, that God was everything, this energy, uh, and they believed uh, that the pursuit of virtue, what was right, uh, was the thing that uh, everyone needed to pursue. So you got to picture this. You got the Epicureans going, if it feels good, do it. If it's a life of pleasure, we should pursue it. You got the Stoics over here going, no, if it's virtuous, if it's real, God is in everything, all the energy. And so we have to pursue virtue. And you shove Paul right into the middle of this, that would have been a really fun marketplace conversation. I guarantee you, people are gathering around to listen uh, to what has to be said here. If you're taking notes, this has been a point in the last three sermons that I've given in one fashion or another. And that means that the Lord's trying to say something specifically to our group. Are you ready for this? Number one, how do you share the gospel with really smart people? Number one, you must be burdened for their soul. And number two, you must be willing to talk about matters of faith. You must be willing to talk about matters of faith. Here's what's so interesting. In our city, there are a lot of you that have gotten to the position that you're in because you take that whole faith piece and you compartmentalize it and you sit on it and pretend like it's not there. What we've forgotten as believers in Jesus Christ is us forcing our faith upon the office is something that is wrong and against the law. But for you yourself to be a Christian, there is no law against that. You gotta remember, for you to hide that piece of who you are is not you being a good office mate. In a lot of ways, it's you being sneaky. In a lot of ways, it's you hiding this really important piece of who you are. And Paul lays it out here. Epicureans, Stoics, in the middle of the marketplace, he is still able to be who he is. There is a tasteful way to walk the line and to do it correctly. If you're taking notes, write this down. People will not consider your faith unless they see you live it, and they will not understand your faith unless you explain it. Let me say it again. People will not consider your faith unless they see you live it, and they will not understand your faith until you hear it explain hear you explain it there was a wonderful christian philosopher that said this at one point preach the gospel and when necessary use words can i just tell you that in this generation that saying has been taken so far out of whack 
that we should never say any words about the gospel. That was never the intent when the philosopher spoke it. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, a man looks at Philip and says, how can I understand the gospel that I'm reading unless someone explains it to me? The words are always necessary. But listen, they won't hear what you have to say if they don't see you live it. And if you don't speak it, there's no way they can come to a saving knowledge unless we expound on why we believe what we believe. You must be willing to talk about matters of faith. I told some of you this story previously. It's a crazy moment. We had a church member in the hospital, at VA hospital, and while the church member was there, he would end up passing away. And um, we met a woman in the hospital whose husband had really bad congestive heart failure. But the way we met was what was so interesting. The Lord set up a pretty powerful moment. So if any of you have the waterfront masks, the black masks with the waterfront logo on it, there were three of the masks that are different from the original grouping. And the way that we were able to tell that they were different is because the earpieces on them are different than the ones with the masks that we were able to order. And so those three masks were mine. I had them in my office. I got the original prototypes, and so I, I had those three in my office. One day, I left one of them on the back counter over there, and somebody grabbed my mask and took it. I realized that's so unsanitary. I apologize. It's only happened one time, all right? Okay? <laughs> they grabbed the mask, and they took it. So I go into the hospital, and there is a person I have never seen before wearing my mask there in the hospital. So the church member, his wife had grabbed the mask and she was the one who'd used it. This woman needed a mask. She washed it, kept it in her purse, and she said, here, you can use this one because they had some different mask restrictions. They had to have double masks in order to be able to go into the room. All that to say, I see that mask and in the waiting area, I look and I go, hey, do you go to Waterfront Church? I don't feel like I've met you before. She goes, no. She goes, but this woman gave me the mask. I said, well, I actually pastor the church. She goes, well, how about that? She goes, can you go visit my husband right now? I said, uh, sure. What's going on? She said, he's got congestive heart failure. She said, they think he'll pass away soon. She said, would you please come with me? She's wearing my mask. I mean, the Holy Spirit has set up this moment. So I walk into the room, and when I get into the room, this man can hardly move. His arms are down on the side of the bed. His eyes are alert, bloodshot, and he is huffing and puffing, huffing and puffing from that congestive heart failure. I walk in. I put my hand on his foot, and I said, sir, I just want to pray for you. But then all of a sudden, I feel a kick in my gut that I'm supposed to ask him, does he need to be forgiven, and would he like to be saved? Can I just tell you, even as a pastor and minister of the gospel, my first response was to go, but Lord, I don't have a relationship with this man. I'd like to develop a friendship before I just come right out and ask this big, heavy question. And I'm telling you, even as a pastor, I'm having that discussion in my head with Almighty God because I don't want to overstep my bounds. But so strong, I feel the Spirit say, ask him if he needs to repent and ask him if he needs to be saved. And praise God, I fought the fear. And I said, sir, do you need to repent? And he nods his head. 
I said, sir, do you need to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? And he lifts his arm up and begins to pound his chest like this. The nurses go, he hasn't moved in days. He lifts his hand up, starts to pound it across his chest as he breathes heavy, and his wife goes, oh my God, he's getting saved. It was incredible. He died the next day. It messed with me. Because again, even as a minister of the gospel, I tried to think of all these reasons why it would be overstepping my bounds to ask him about eternity when that was his moment. You want to share the gospel with really smart people, people in authority over you? They've got to see you broken for them and then listen to me tastefully in the right context when the Spirit calls for it. Have that conversation. Know the law. Know your workplace situation. I promise you, if you say we're not allowed to talk about it at all, it's a stinking lie. You need to go back and do the research. Every single one of you, because you're an American, can talk about it in one way or another. You just need to do the research and figure out how you can tastefully do that. You can't force your views on the office, but you can be who you are. It's just the way it goes. You have to be willing to talk about the matters of faith. I thank God that I get to tell you that story from a positive standpoint and not that I was a chicken and not that I didn't do it. It begs the question, is it time you scattered seed on fertile soil? Is it time you scattered seed on fertile soil? You can't save anybody, but we do have the ability to share the message. We do have the ability to live our faith and to put it to words. Now flip back over to Acts 17. And we'll look at the next verse here. Acts 17, verses 19 through 21. It says, So they took him, and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagos. Some people say Areopagos. We're going to call it Areopagos, okay? Okay, to a meeting of the Areopagos, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who lived in the city spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That is DC, isn't it? Uh, you, got, you got Acts 17, 21. You got to, we love talking about it. whether you're from this country, whether you're from this city or not, man, you wouldn't live here if you really hated talking politics. It's just the way that it goes. You live here, and so uh, that is part of who we are. It says that Paul specifically went to this place called the Areopagos. Now, I want to read to you. This is not a Christian author. I want to read to you. This is a, it's, from a, it's from a commentary. But I want to read you the description of what Paul was walking into. He's used to preaching in the synagogue. He's used to preaching in the marketplace and talking in the marketplace. Um, this is a little different. Listen to this. It says, uh, this, is the, uh, this is the definition of the, Areo, the uh, description of the Areopagos. It says, the hill of Mars... The seat of the ancient, uh, venerable Athenian court, which, uh, which decided most of the solemn questions connected with religion. Socrates was arraigned and condemned on the charge of innovating on the state religion uh, in this place. It received its name from the legend of the trial of Mars for the murder of his son Neptune. The judges sat in the open-air seats, hewn out of the rock on a platform ascended by a flight of stone steps immediately from the marketplace. A temple of Mars was on the brow of the edifice, and the sanctuary of the Furies was in, the bro was in a broken cleft of, of the rock immediately 
below the judges' seats. The Acropolis rose above it with the Parthenon and the colossal statue of Athena. This is a quote about it. It says, It was a scene with which the dread recollection of the centuries were associated. Those who withdrew to the Areopagos were from the, uh, from the Agora came, as it were, into the presence of a higher power. No place in Athens was so suitable for a discourse upon the mysteries of religion. I share that to say this with you. He had gone from the marketplace and the synagogue to a very official statement before the Congress, the religious Congress of the day. He is standing there. I mean, it might as well be that full setting you have when you testify before Congress. That's what Paul is doing in this circumstance. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do you share the gospel with really smart people? Number one, you've got to be burdened for their soul. Number two, you must be willing to talk about matters of faith. And number three, you must stick to what's true. You must stick to what's true. A lot of stuff gets talked about in the back room just shooting the breeze. When you testify before Congress, you ain't just shooting the breeze. It's going on the congressional record. And here's the deal. These people who are Epicurean and Stoic look at Paul and they go, here's the deal. You've been a babbler to us up until this point, but you brought up some things we hadn't thought of before. Would you like to go before the council and go on the record? Now, here's the deal. When it comes to witnessing to someone in a position of leadership where they have something to lose from receiving the gospel, specifically from their employee or someone who they feel like is under them or beneath them, don't miss this. Don't allow that person to be someone that you expound upon the things you suspect in the spiritual realm. You stick to what's true. You stick to what you know to be true in Scripture. If you're taking notes, write this down. Some of you, the whole reason you're at church today is to hear this statement. Are you ready? Don't think out loud with the wrong crowd. Let me say that again. Don't think out loud with the wrong crowd. There are some of you, and you are trying to reach someone with the gospel who is a deep thinker and truly brilliant in their philosophy and theology. And here's the deal. They are not the ones that you need to think out loud with. You have other believers that you can connect with and do that. For them, stick to Scripture. Stick to what you know to be true, and avoid the words, I just feel like. For the person in that position where they truly have something to lose, they will not attach their lives to something that you feel. For them, it's something either they feel or something that has been proven true to them through Scripture or through their interactions with Almighty God. Some of you, although well-meaning, are creating hurdles for these people around you in leadership because of I feel, I feel, I feel. Stick to the truth, what you know, over what you suspect in those relationships. Now you'd say, does that mean I can never have those discussions? Absolutely you can have those discussions. Just have them with the right people. Have them with individuals where they have already decided their foundation of faith, and then work through them together. Even as a pastor, I had something take place in my life, some feelings and emotions that I had that would affect my theology. And can I tell you what I did? I don't just expound upon it in front of the stage and go, hey, I got these questions. What do you guys think, right? <laughs> I saw it out another pastor friend here in the city. I said, I'm working through this. This happened. Can you walk me through and point me to some scriptures that could help me develop a foundation of truth? And you know what's interesting? There were some really easy answers to the questions that I had. So easy. And then all of a sudden it was like, huh, well, how about that? And then I could move and present the truth to others. For some of you, you got somebody you're witnessing to, 
and you are very unfiltered, allowing all your feelings to drift into that conversation, especially when it's family. Can I tell you, when you're trying to witness to family, make sure you're careful not to just unfiltered let them have all those theological thoughts that you're expounding upon, because they know you so well, it makes it sound like that thing that you are thinking about, that thing you're processing, has just as much importance as the foundation of your faith. I want to encourage you, don't think out loud with the wrong crowd. Paul writes it this way. Flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We'll call it a day. In Philippians 4, 8, Paul says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We as believers should be processing the truths of the universe. But when it comes to witnessing, stick to the truth. It begs the question, is your spiritual conversation appropriate to your audience? Is your spiritual conversation appropriate to your audience? For some of you, that is the last piece you need to see God do some pretty amazing things. Stick to the truth. Thanks for listening today, guys. Again, a little bit different message, but Paul has really given us some nuts and bolts of the faith. Let's do business with God. If everybody could bow your heads and close your eyes.